After this, Luke has strategically placed the story of Jesus going to his hometown, Nazareth, where he launches his public mission. At a synagogue gathering, Jesus stands up and he reads from the scroll of Isaiah, saying, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor and freedom for the prisoners, new sight for the blind, and freedom for the oppressed. Now, along with the other Gospels, Jesus is presented here, he's the Messianic King bringing the good news of God's kingdom. But what Luke uniquely highlights are the social implications of Jesus' mission. So he brings freedom. The Greek word is aphasis. It literally means release, and it refers to the ancient Jewish practice of the year of Jubilee described in Leviticus 25. It's when all Israelite slaves were released, when people's debts were canceled, when land that was sold is returned back to families. It's all a symbolic reenactment of God's liberating justice and mercy. And then Jesus says that this good news of release is specifically for the poor. Now, in the Old Testament, the poor, or in Hebrew, ani, it's a much broader category than just people who don't have very much money. It refers also to people of low social status in their culture, like people with disabilities or women and children and the elderly. It also can include social outsiders, like people of other ethnic groups, or people whose poor life choices have placed them outside acceptable religious circles. And Jesus says that God's kingdom is especially good news for these people. So after this, Luke immediately puts in front of us a large block of stories, showing us what Jesus' good news for the poor looks like. It involves the healing of a bedridden sick woman, or a man who has a skin disease, or someone who's paralyzed. There are stories here also about Jesus welcoming into his community a tax collector, like Levi, who's not financially poor, but he is a social outsider. There's a story about Jesus forgiving a prostitute. Luke showing us how Jesus' kingdom brought restoration and reversal of people's whole life circumstances. He's expanding the circle of people who get invited in to discover the healing power of God's kingdom. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us gathered here. Lord, take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This morning I'm reading from Luke's Gospel in chapter 6, starting in verse 43 and going through verse 49. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like. They are like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When the flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house... 
it collapsed, and its destruction was complete. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All throughout Luke's gospel as well as the other gospels, what Jesus does consistently is he redefines what Israel means. By this time in history, for over a thousand years, Israel referred to the descendants of Abraham. Whether they were uh, within the actual physical borders of the kingdom of Israel, centered on Jerusalem, or whether they were living elsewhere, whether they were cast off in exile, whether they were spread around the Mediterranean, if you were a descendant of Abraham, you were part of Israel. And by Jesus' day and age, it's kind of been taken to the extreme where the assumption often is if you're, if you're one of these people and you've been born into that bloodline, uh, you're good to go. You're okay. Whatever else may happen, you're one of God's chosen people and it's going to be fine for you. And what, what Jesus does over and over again is he tells people, actually, that's not true. And if you'd paid attention in the Old Testament, you would have known that that was never true. And what he tells people is, now God's chosen people are the ones who hear my words and put them into practice. Anyone and everyone who listens to me and follows me is part of Israel. And by extension, those who don't do those things are no longer part of my chosen people. So you can see why lots of the people in Israel were kind of mad at him from time to time. So he gives us this parable about the trees producing fruit, right? And the implication, of course, is that your lives always produce some kind of fruit, right? Some of you are going to produce bad fruit, some are good fruit. Most of us are probably somewhere in the middle, right? And we might hope that we lean a bit more towards the good fruit side of the spectrum, but everyone's producing a bit of both. Hopefully you do just more good than bad. But obviously what he's talking about here are, are things that uh, affect your character, right? Because it's what, about what's in your heart and what your heart is producing. So the question is, what are the bad fruits and what are the good fruits? And the difficulty we face is that um, we, we, we get some definitions of what those are from Scripture, but the world has its own definition of what good fruit is and what bad fruit is. Right? The world has its own ideas about what makes a person good or bad. And you know, sometimes there is actually some overlap there. But there are quite a few things that the world upholds as virtues that we should all strive for that you don't actually see in the Bible talked about that way. And it can be very, very difficult for us to discern which is which. Because we're steeped in all this stuff from birth, aren't we? I mean, we, we, we have very clear ideas fed to us all the time, day in and day out, about about what makes a person a good person, what, what are admirable qualities in someone, and what makes someone uh, a, like a person of strong character. And if we get led astray on this, we're in deep trouble. So the world tells us that, that, that good fruits are things like competitiveness. Right? We all like a good competitor, right? If I watch a lot of sports. I like people who know how to compete, right? You want the guy on your team who's going to outcompete the other guy no matter what. You just do. But we, we take it beyond sports, don't we? I mean, it, it applies to like every aspect of our lives. We, we, we like the people in the business world who are competitive, who have that edge to them, who will do what it takes to get ahead. 
We also tend to value uh, workaholism, right? We don't say that. But we tend, to value, we tend to take that idea of a strong work ethic to the extreme. To the point where we, we tend to actually value it a little bit if someone is willing to allow their work ethic to eclipse their family, their friends, their relationships. Right, we've all seen in the workplace, we've seen people get, get judged a little bit when they take time off. Especially if it's just that they feel like they need some family time, right? How many people do we know who've been shamed at work for taking time off after having a kid? Especially the fathers. We take it to the extreme. Self-interest. See, this is a big one because this one we don't actually notice that we're doing all the time. Because there's a really, really fine line between uh, self-care so that you can be present for others and self-care just to a selfish degree, isn't there? I mean, it's obviously a good thing to, to take the time that you need to make sure that you have the energy that you, to be the good husband, to be the good wife, to be a good parent, to be good at your job. All of those things are important, but you can easily cross that line. And, and it goes beyond that because actually self-interest affects the way we handle our money, helps, affects the way we, we do our jobs, right? It goes into all of these categories, and we're taught from day one in our lives that you've got to take care of yourself first. What we're actually taught is a degree of selfishness. And maybe even a, a communal sense of selfishness. We're taught that aggressiveness and, and strength and power, that these are character traits we should admire because they get you ahead in the world. Right? We like the people who will always stand up for themselves, who won't, who won't you know, back down from a fight. We like all that. And, and are you noticing, by the way, that actually these things aren't entirely inherently bad? This is how we get into trouble. Because there are actually good parts of all of this, and in, and in small measures they might be helpful, but what we do is we tend to take them and we isolate them and, and we magnify their importance and we say these are the only good qualities you're supposed to have. And then we say that the bad fruits are things like gentleness and humility, meekness, and selflessness. That these are all things that, that will only hold you back. And, and the difficult part is even, even those of us who know intellectually that that is flatly contrary to the gospel, we haven't always internalized that. So we might know it up here, but we don't always actually live it out. The Bible actually is pretty clear on what the good fruits are. It, it lists them in Paul's letters in Galatians. It lists things like, like kindness and generosity and peace and patience and faithfulness. Just before this passage, right, Jesus lists the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who are suffering. All the things that, that would normally mark someone out as a failure in this life, Jesus says, they're the ones who are blessed in God's kingdom. The fruit we bear reflects what's in our hearts. Now, obviously, if your heart is centered on Christ, there's going to be times, actually, when, when strength and power and aggressiveness might actually be a good thing, right? Are you confused yet? Yeah, it's fine. 
What we can never do is take Jesus' sayings and say, here he's given us this clear list of rules to follow, and here's the behaviors to avoid, and here's the behaviors to embrace. Because what he's doing is he's saying that God will see what's on your heart and he will judge the condition of your heart. And so there are some things that tend to be amplified in the world that aren't actually the the qualities you want to focus on as a follower of Christ, but in the right circumstances, they're good. And if your heart is in the right place, if you have built your house on the rock, it will be expressed when it needs to be expressed. Because the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. You notice that Jesus never sticks up for himself. He fights for other people, protects other people. But when his own life is on the line and his own life is being threatened, he goes to the cross. It's a different set of values. And Jesus is pretty clear in this story, which, which troubles a lot of us, I think. He's pretty clear that not everyone who calls him Lord <laughs> is going to be okay in the end right? That should bother us a little bit. Because what it means is that there are plenty of people who would identify as Christians who would call themselves that, but who very clearly are not. And, and this is the moment where we all like to think, yeah, that's so-and-so over there. Man, I just, that guy. And I'll confess to you that as I was preparing this sermon and I got to that part, I, like I was picturing people in my mind who I thought of that way. And I was thinking, oh man, I hope, no, I won't go any further. Um, yeah, I was talking about Javi. Right? We all do it. We all do it. But obviously what we're supposed to do is, is look inward first. To find those places where Actually, we are the ones who are bearing bad fruit. To seek out those, those parts of our lives where we, we really are not living by Jesus' values. And I'm, I'm just convinced that there's plenty of Christians in America today who are not actually following Jesus. Right? They've built their house on sand and the foundation's already starting to wear away. I don't think you can actually uh, like, like look at people and say, well, this person is, you know, we, we tend to like separate people into their respective camps, right, and say, well, you know, okay, the, the conservatives over here, they built their house on sand, or the progressives over here, they built their house on sand, but it, it applies equally to both. There's a lot of people, there's a lot of people in our churches today who fit into this category. And this is not a judging or condemning statement. This is, this is a problem because what happens is if they built their house on sand, then when the storms of life come, it washes the house away and then they're in deep trouble. See, and, and, and we can tell because they don't live as if any of this is true. Right? There are people who will call themselves Christians, but they hate people. They insult people. They treat them poorly. Think of all the folks who will, who will go to a restaurant after church today and not tip the waitress. And they can tell you're from church because you're the only people on a Sunday morning who are dressed nicely. So just <laughs> FYI, they know when you come from church. But, but think what it does to the witness of the church when they know that here you are, you've come from church and you're a terrible customer and you're rude and then you don't tip. I mean, it may not seem that significant. It's a little thing, but, but it can have a big impact. The mouth speaks what the heart is full of. 
Jesus has always called his followers to live differently. That's what it means to, to hear what he's saying and to put it into practice, to build your house on the rock. You've got to live differently. And God doesn't expect perfection. You notice he never says you better do this right every single moment of every single day or else. He just expects dedication and a commitment to living the way that Jesus teaches us to live, even when it's not the way everyone else around us is living. You also notice Jesus never tells his followers, hey, I'm going to hand out these gospel tracts, and you take this tract, and you go to the next town, and you tell them everything that's on here, and get them to pray the sinner's prayer, and that's how you spread the gospel. All he ever does is tell them to live differently. Because he knows that as he goes around the Judean countryside planting these little communities of people who follow him, that what's going to happen is as they live differently and as they live out these practices of generosity and kindness and selflessness, those people in their villages will see that something is different. And they will come to learn more. And just like the mustard seed planted in the garden, it will grow into something bigger and bigger over time. His whole method of evangelism was just to teach people to live differently because he knew that if they actually lived out the gospel in their daily lives, that would be sufficient to bring new people into God's kingdom. The people who first heard these stories, when they hear him talking about the house built on the rock, they would have understood within the context of everything he was saying that the house he's talking about is the temple in Jerusalem. And he's inviting his hearers to understand that, that he is now the true temple and that one built in Jerusalem is not going to last. In other words, these, these stories, not just this one, but almost every parable in all four of the Gospels, they aren't just about individual lives. They're about the communal life of God's people. It's not just, is your life bearing good fruit? It's, is your church bearing good fruit or bad fruit? Because you can't actually separate the two things. Your individual life can't be completely pulled out of your communal life. It doesn't work like that. They're interconnected. And the sad truth is most churches in our part of the world have built their houses on sand. Because for so, so long, we haven't had to bother to teach people how to dig deeper and disciple their own faith. We just kind of assumed that they were all well-taught Christians and they were good to go. And the reality is that just hasn't been true for a long, long time. And now the church is having to play catch-up and we're having to figure out how to reteach things to people that, that haven't actually been taught in our churches for decades. And we're having to sort of learn things on the fly. But whole churches have, have built their house without a foundation. And we're seeing them get washed away right and left. When Jesus warns people in the Gospels about things like, he says things like repent and to be spared from the wrath to come, you know, he's actually not necessarily talking about things that happen after we die. I mean, he's talking to his people very specifically about things that are going on in their world. And he's telling his followers very, very specifically if you continue on with all these plans that are, that are running through the undercurrent of Jewish society for a violent revolution against Rome, you're doomed. He warns people over and over again that all these plots to overthrow the Roman Empire, they're going to fail. 
and you're going <laughs> to suffer the consequences. He tells them over and over again, what, is, what happens is 33 years after he dies, they do rebel against Rome, and they lose spectacularly. And I don't just mean they lose the war, I mean the city of Jerusalem is destroyed, the temple is destroyed, and the Jewish people are taken out of the promised land and scattered across the empire. They're annihilated. You know who wasn't harmed? All the little Christian communities that were dotting the Judean countryside because they didn't participate in that rebellion. What Jesus is telling his followers is this desire that you all have for, for vengeance and for blood and, and, to, and to finally get the, the, make the score even between you and the oppressors, that's what the world calls good fruit, and I'm telling you it's, it's bad. You're going to live differently. This is not how God's kingdom operates. And all that to say that Jesus' message does not just apply to things that happen after we die. It has implications for our lives here and now. We're called to be different. And that may look a bit different in this day and age than it did during the times of the gospel. I mean, I hope that none of you are plotting a violent revolution. And if you are, don't tell me about it. but we're still called to be a people set apart. A people who are noticeably different from the rest of the world in such a way that people will see how we're living and they'll want to know more about why. And what better time of year than the last three weeks before Easter to actually search our own hearts and find those places where we've built our house on sand and dig deeper Put that foundation on the rock to figure out where we have ignored the values taught in the gospel, where we have not lived as Jesus teaches us to live. Be different and build your house on the rock. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.